0: The Rebbe created an army of 20-somethings. What could 20-somethings do? What do they know? They're babies. They're immature. And you send them out to a community where they are the only ones and you expect them to make a change and a difference? And the answer was idealism is more important than experience, training. When you're idealistic, you can do anything. So look what happens. Yeshiva boys, simple kids, I grew up with them. I know them. Nothing extraordinary, nothing special, and no special training. And they go out into a community And they build building six million dollars, seven million. These guys can't add. They never mastered the multiplication table. And I say, how how much did it cost you to build this building? We thought it would be six million, it turned out seven million. Oh, just like that. Where did they learn this? And then when there's a flood, who are the first responders? Chabad. They needed a helicopter. All of a sudden, there are helicopters. FEMA is still figuring out what to do. And these guys, straight out of yeshiva, who don't speak English very well, have arranged for a helicopter. And you ask them, how did you do that? They say, well, you needed a helicopter. (laughs) You do what you got to do. Nothing stands in their way. Because when you're idealistic, That overcomes every obstacle. And the amazing thing is, for 50 years, the Rebbe maintained absolute confidence in our idealism. He never offered a reward. He never offered praise and and fame. Only on your idealism. It's an honor system. You go because you believe in what you're doing, and there's not going to be any rewards, there's not going to be any ceremonies, you're going to do what you do for the rest of your life, and nobody will even notice. Well, that's called idealistic. One rabbi who was a shliach, wrote to the Rebbe about an activity that he had, that he had pulled off, and the Rebbe didn't answer So he writes to the Nebbe, did I do something wrong? Why didn't the Nebbe answer? And the Nebbe said, more or less in these words, he said, not every time you do something do you need a pat on the back. You did what you had to do, and that's what you had to do. He kept us focused on our own idealism and never gave up on us. In the 1980s, the Rebbe did another unprecedented thing. He allowed the Fabranian to be televised. Actually, it wasn't television. It wasn't cable either. It was satellite, hook up, down, up, and down. I don't know. What. It was cutting-edge technology. There were these huge cameras in the Fabranian. There was this huge dish. On the roof of 770, and the Fabrangins were satellite uh, broadcast, and everywhere in the world they were picking up the Fabrangian. It was amazing. They had a number at the bottom of the screen for anybody who wanted to call in to find out what they're looking at. We got a phone call from a United States Navy ship <laughs> out in Greenland, and there were two Jews on the ship, and they were playing with the, with the remote, and all of a sudden, there's a Fabrenian. They were fascinated. One radio host in Canada told me that he he accidentally came upon the Fabrengen. He says, I just couldn't look away. I couldn't change the channel. I just sat there and cried. I said, why were you crying? The Fabrengen is a happy occasion. There is singing, there's L'chaim. What were you crying? He said, it's the first time in my life I saw a Jew who was completely comfortable in his Jewish skin. I mean, this was broadcast to the world. And the Rebbe Fabrain, exactly the way he would Fabrain, if they were only sin. Completely comfortable in his skin. And I always wondered, by the way, you know, there are so many rabbis who are great speakers, in their temples, in their synagogues. They give these fantastic sermons, and they're very proud, and they publish them. How come in all the years, none of those rabbis ever went on television? Why don't you share what you have to say with the world? Mm-hmm. Somehow, in Somehow, in the security of the synagogue, I'm great, but exposed to the world? hmm, not that comfortable. And the Rebbe went out to the world as a Rebbe, speaking Yiddish. And I had the privilege of being the translator. We have a Sunday night program for VIPs that you might be interested in. It's informal, It's questions and answers, it's conversation. It's really relaxed, it's really pleasant, enjoyable, informative, and uh, kind of community-like. It's a Sunday night program, there's a um, Wednesday morning program for the VIPs, and there's a Wednesday night program. All of it just conversation, casual, laid-back, unscripted. So join us, take a look, click uh, the link below and see which which of the three suits you best and join us for some enjoyable conversation. So I gotta tell you this little incident. For eight years, six times a year, There were satellite hookups for the Fabranians. I never thought, how did I get the job? How did I end up being the translator? There was no training for it. I went to the library. I thought, let me do this professionally. If I'm going to do it, let me do it professionally. I go to the library, and I take out a book on simultaneous translation. Now, where do people do simultaneous translation? At the UN. So the book was mostly about the UN. And here's the advice that they gave. First of all, look over the notes carefully, which means every speaker gives his translator his speech in writing in advance. Well, that wasn't going to happen with the Debra, so that piece of advice was gone. The second piece of advice was, don't hesitate to use the red light. The speaker had a little red light on his podium, and if he was going a little too fast for the translator, the translator would push a button that meant slow down. Well, that wasn't going to happen the <laughs> there was nothing in the book that was useful, because this was unprecedented. So, I don't know, how did I get the job? So years after the Fabrenin stopped, I happened to be talking to the Rebbe's secretary who was in charge of the hookups. And I said, how is it that Rebbe trusted me to translate his words? Did you tell him that it was good, that he trusted you? He said, "Did never asked me. I said, so it was your son who organized the whole thing? He was the authority? He told the Debe it was good? No, not that I know him. I said, so how did this happen? I'm translating the Debe's words to the world. Who approved it? He says, you know, the devil lets everybody use their talent, and if you're willing and you're doing it, he's fine with it. So this, this is way too personal to be that casual. So I found out that after the second fabrenium, after the second fabrenium, they brought a little uh, player into the devil's room, and they played one talk, one sikha for the devil, with the translation. The devil listened to the whole thing. Someplace during the during the, the the taping, he smiled at something, didn't say anything. And when the sikha was finished, he said, "Thank you very much." And they took the machine out, and that was it. So I asked Rabbi Krinsky. I don't understand. If the Rebbe was going to check on my translation, why did he do it after the first tabranium? Why did he wait after the second? Listen to what Rabbi Krinsky says. He says, you think the Rebbe was checking to see if you were doing a good job? The Rebbe was checking to see what he could do to make your job easier. And then I remembered that at the third fabrenyan, I translated a a phrase that the Rebbe used a lot, with more strength and with more power. That's how I translated it. At the third fabrenyan, the Rebbe used his expression, that common expression, and he translated himself. He said, with more strength and more enthusiasm. I got it. <laughs> so it was true. He was checking to see how to make it easier for me. And that's the Lubavitcher Whatever the once said about his father-in-law. What is a true leader? A true leader is someone who does not move from one responsibility to another. He adds responsibility to the previous. So, my father-in-law, the Rebbe says, my father-in-law was first responsible for his family before he became Rebbe. Then he became responsible for the yeshiva in Russia. He was the dean of the yeshiva. Then he became Rebbe, and he was responsible for all chassidim all over the world. And yet, he never compromised his original responsibility to his family. A real leader doesn't leave the smaller responsibility and graduate to the higher and greater one. He keeps adding, but doesn't drop anything. So the Rebbe became literally a world leader and yet never forgot the individual, his original responsibility. That is greatness that you hardly ever see. So what does that mean for us? Twenty-fifth year? practical things. Number one, we cannot be private citizens. We have to wake up in the morning and think, who needs me? Who needs an encouraging word? Who needs a little inspiration? Who needs a little guidance? Who needs a little support? That's what the day should be about. And at the end of the day, when you look back at your day, did you do enough? Is there someone else? And there is always someone else. So in our times, we have discovered that a microaggression can ruin your day. It can do, it can do more damage than that. A microaggression can turn a person suicidal. Seems crazy but it's true, and if that's true, then what can a micro mitzvah do, because the positive is always more powerful than the negative. So if a micro can ruin your day, a micro mitzvah can make your day. So no heroics, just everyday goodness. Everyday kindness, a micro kindness, can change a life. Literally can. So if we stop thinking of ourselves as private citizens, and we think of ourselves as ambassadors, our life becomes so much more meaningful. And in dealing with young people, with teenagers, Don't think that if you demand less, you will get more. It doesn't work that way. The teenagers are really idealistic, and if you give them a Judaism that is private, just for themselves, they're not excited. They want a Judaism that changes the world. Challenge them. Challenge them. Stop quetching. Do something. Do something to change the world for the better. I want to end with this really beautiful story. There's a rabbi in Israel who is brilliant. Really a genius. And he gives a class in Talmud at the university in Jerusalem. All the professors come. But there was one professor that refused to come for many years. He's been giving this class for about 40 years now. This one professor refuses to come. One day, the rabbi meets this professor. And he says to him, why don't you come to the class? All your colleagues come, they enjoy it. Come, you'll enjoy it. He says, I don't belong at a Talmud class, and we have nothing in common. And the rabbi said, what are, you, what are you saying? What does that mean, we have nothing in common? The professor says, since I came to Israel as a teenager after the war, I eat pork on Shabbos. <laughs> So the rabbi said, only on Shabbos? (laughs) He says, Daphke on Shabbos. So the rabbi said, No, you see, you said we have nothing in common. We do have something in common. We both observe Shabbos. (laughs) I observe it the traditional way, and you observe it In an original way, the man started coming to the class, but he was not a fool. He explained to his colleagues what happened. He says, in the the rabbi's joke, I heard something really profound, because the rabbi was saying to him like this, you don't belong at a Talmud class, and we have nothing in common. Why?'" Because you stop being a Jew, because you eat Chazer on Shabbos. Listen to yourself. Why do you eat Chazer? Because you're angry at God for the Holocaust. So you believe in God, otherwise who are you angry at? You believe that God runs the world, so it must be His fault. He's responsible. You believe in kashrut, how do you know pork is not kosher? So you decided to punish God by eating pork, the most un Jewish thing you could think of. But somehow, just eating pork didn't feel like enough of a punishment. So you thought, you know, I'm going to eat the pork on Shabbos. That's like adding insult to injury, right? And that felt good. So that means that you believe that Shabbos is a holy day. Otherwise, why does it feel better to eat the pork on Shabbos? So, you believe in God, you believe He runs the world, you believe in Kashrut, you believe in Shabbos. You're orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> one more mitzvah, you're a fanatic. And you don't belong in a Talmud class? This is basically the Rebbe's message. The Rebbe's message is a Jew who says, I'm not Jewish. I hate God. Oh, you're so Jewish. (laughs) Only a Jew can do that. (laughs) When you think there's a Jew who isn't interested, why would he come to a Talmud class? He eats pork on Shabbos. The answer is he eats pork on Shabbos because he's a good Jew. That sounds strange? It's not. Everything a Jew does is Jewish. You just have to push the right button and it all comes out. Every Jew wants to be a better Jew. So let's get to work. We need a few more mitzvahs, a few more improvements, a few more good deeds, a little more kindness, a little more love and oneness among Jews, and the world will tilt in favor of godliness, and the world will change, and we will bring Mashiach, not because we're so holy, but because it's so true. All we have to do is do it. So now the 25th year, now is the occasion. Now is the occasion that ever trusted us, that ever believes in us, that ever is depending on us to complete his project. And what better way to live your life anyway? So thank you very much. And let's... Partner with Rabbi Friedman. Visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support.